And I did want to uh, make mention on this. Those who are new members today, so Zach and Marsha, if you can just be out in the gathering center and members, you welcome them. So after the benediction, just try to make your way out there and uh, people can welcome you uh, as part of the family. Um, I, before getting into the text of the sermon today, I want to remind us all what the point, again, of this series is. At the beginning, or in every sermon that I've preached so far, I've quoted from Exodus 34, because the point of this series is, is that we would know the glory of God. We would know what the glory of God is, and that we would actually glory in his glory. So I'm going to read from Exodus 34 again, and you can follow along on the screen behind me. This is God showing up to Moses. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name or the glory of the Lord. Here is the glory of God. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head forward toward the earth and worshiped. The Lord declared his glory to Moses. This is the expression of who he is, that he's merciful, he's slow to anger, he's forgiving, and he will not clear the guilty. He will punish human beings for their sins. God is merciful and just. You hear these words and you see that his mercy and his justice are profound. As I was thinking about these verses this past week, I was reminded of the Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis. And there's this part in the Chronicles of Narnia in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that the little girl, Susan, she, um, she discovers who Aslan is. And Aslan represents Jesus. And so Mr. Beaver is talking to Susan, and this is the discovery. Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall rather feel nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? Said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Is God safe? It's an interesting question. I think by safe, Lewis means that we could, we could come into the presence of God and we can protect ourselves and we can be fine and we can be unchanged. We, we, we can feel safety in and of ourselves when we come into the presence of God. Is God safe? Is he? No, he, he's not. He's so powerful, he's so wondrous that there should be a holy awe as we approach him. But he is so good. 
so good that we can come into his presence, that for those who come into his presence, acknowledging the need for mercy and grace, they'll receive it. If you approach him denying your self-trust and you approach him repenting of your sins, turning to him, oh, there's goodness that you receive. See, Lewis's description is very different than how I think a lot of modern secular descriptions are of Jesus and even descriptions of Jesus within the church today. For some, Jesus is more of a cleaned up version of the God of the Old Testament. You know, the God of the Old Testament, he couldn't control his temper. And then Jesus shows up and just tones that down and everything's fine and God's nice now. Other people view Jesus as one who just, who just points out the sins of our enemies. I can't believe you do that, you do that, you do that, you do that, you do that. You guys are all bad. But what about us? Are we perfect? No. Other people, they think Jesus just came to change politics and government, and so they use Jesus for power plays and control. But I think by so many people in our day, Jesus is simply a guy who communicated a lot of grace. And by grace, they mean almost unconditional acceptance. That Jesus just communicates unconditional acceptance, almost no matter what you do. I mean, as long as you don't kill and you don't punch people all the time. He accepts you. Is that Jesus? The Bible tells us that Jesus actually came to reveal the glory of God, which means that Jesus came to reveal Exodus 34. That's actually what John says, the apostle, in his first chapter of his gospel. In chapter 1, verse 14, I've got it on the slide here, the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, read that last line with me, full of grace and truth. Doesn't that sound like shorthand from Exodus 34? Mercy and judgment, grace and truth. So, Jesus reveals to us the glory of God. And last week, David graciously preached the message last week from this parable on God's glory being revealed in the parable of this wedding feast and a future judgment. Today, I'm going into another story that Jesus tells. And in this story, we see, we see that Jesus is not like the gods that this world, or he's, he's not like the God of this world makes him out to be. Jesus certainly isn't safe, but he is powerful, all-powerful. He's all-glorious, and he is so very good. And in his goodness, he addresses human hearts, and in so doing, he confronts human hearts to see their need to turn from themselves and to turn to Jesus, to trust in him. Their need to not trust their own self-righteousness, but to trust the righteousness that Jesus would give. In this story, I hope we behold God's glory that summons people to rest in Christ. Now, with all that said, the main idea of the sermon today is that God's glory, in other words, his mercy and his condemnation, will be on perfect display in the life to come. I know even in saying this, some people might recoil at the word condemnation, but we have to come to terms with this, don't we? If God does 
punish, what is that? It's condemnation. And that is part of his glory. How can that be part of his glory? Well, that's what we're going to see in this story. This story that Jesus tells shows us what mercy looks like. And this story shows us what judgment or condemnation looks like. And in showing us what those two things look like, it reveals to us how we need Jesus and how Jesus is the answer and how God is life. Now, before going into Luke 16, and you can feel free to turn your Bibles there because we will get there momentarily. But I I do want to say, while some people might refer to this this story as a parable, and it it could be a parable, I actually don't believe it's a parable. And the reason why I don't believe it's a parable is because Jesus actually gives specific names. There is no other parable where Jesus gives names. Names usually take us out of parable category and into real-life category. Now, I could be wrong. could be wrong. But the reason why I'm telling you this is because I I think what Jesus is doing is he's removing the veil between this physical realm and the spiritual realm. And we as human beings, we have a knack and a tendency, especially in our culture today, to ignore the metaphysical and the spiritual. We numb ourselves from the spiritual realm and say all that's real is what I can feel and what I can touch. And Jesus is removing that veil for all of these people and say, saying, you better realize there's an eternal realm. And so what this message is today, even for all of us, we have got to realize there is a realm that exists outside of this one. It is eternally significant that we realize there is a realm outside of this one that we can see. And so we come into Luke 16. And I want us to get a little bit of a backdrop on Luke 16. So let's start reading in verses 13 through 15. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus here shows us that that we can serve money and we can serve stuff with the same type of fervency that we ought to serve God. Did you know that? Just want to make sure we're all awake. Yeah. And and that shouldn't be a shock to us. Uh, To any one of us, have you ever bought things just to feel better? Anybody? Right? Oh my goodness, Amazon saved me. You know? Right? We do it to, have you ever seen a child melt in a store because the parent said no to a gift or to to some type of thing? You've seen it with your own children, right? Because we think this thing is going to give us everything that we want. And Jesus is saying you cannot, you cannot serve God and you cannot serve money and stuff at the same time. So, so let me ask you, do you feel safe when you have a large savings account? And what do you do if the savings account is drained? Where does your faith run to? Do you still trust in God with the same fervency? In Luke 16, we see what Jesus is doing is he's confronting the Pharisees 
who, while they're religious and while they are disciplined, they clearly loved their stuff that they had. Mammon, by the way, is not only referring to just money. It's referring to money and things. So the Pharisees loved their stuff. And as a result, when they heard Jesus' teaching on money, do you, do you see what they did? What, is, what does the text say? They did what? They, they ridiculed him. They made fun of him. Have you, have you ever done that when you've heard preaching that's convicting on money? And you hear this preacher and he's talking about money and, and maybe like me, you've done the same thing that I've done where I go, well, I mean, God is not saying he's against people having money. <laughs> Duh feel better about myself now, right? Or I go on and maybe I'll say to that preacher, well, you know what? I think he's just jealous because he doesn't have money. And so he's missing the point. He's being a little legalistic. I don't know how the Pharisees ridiculed Jesus, but they didn't want to hear this confrontation about money and stuff. And we can relate to that, can't we? Jesus gets to the heart. And he says, you're just trying to justify yourselves before people. But God knows your heart. Now, this word for justify is extremely important in this text. Because that word for justify in the scriptures is to, uh, is to be declared righteous or, or to be affirmed as righteous. Okay? So what, what Jesus is saying about these Pharisees is they do and act in certain ways in order to have human beings affirm that they're righteous. Do you ever live that way too? We, we probably can relate, you know. It's like we serve and we do all these things and, and then, you know, people don't acknowledge us. Well, I'm, I've been serving in the nursery for who knows how long. Well, actually, I know how long, but they don't. And I've done this and 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 this. And, and, but then when somebody comes up and they're like, wow, you are amazing. Whoa, thank you so much. And internally, you're like, you're right, I am. You know, like we have that tendency to want to get the justification from people, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with giving honor to whom honor is due, right? But we don't live for that. Our justification, our standing in life does not come from other human beings. And so what Jesus is seeking to do in this story, we have to get this context, is he's showing the Pharisees, the religious ones who seem to have everything together, he's showing them, you cannot get your justification from people. You cannot get your justification, your declaration of righteousness. You cannot get it from what you do and your status in this life. Don't put trust in money, stuff, or people's affirmation of you. Don't self-justify. Look for God to declare you righteous. That's the influence of this text and this story. Lose the self-trust. Trust in the Lord. So with that backdrop, we can get into the story. Go down to verse 19. And we're going to start by reading just verses 19 through 21. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Jesus is showing two people who are complete opposites. Even in the titles he gives them, you see they are absolutely different from each other. So I'll see behind me, you have the rich man, Rich man and the poor man. 
And the rich man, what we see in the text, he has no name that's given to him. The poor man, we get the name Lazarus. The rich man has fine clothes, purple linen. And the poor man, oh my goodness, I wore purple today. Sorry, I got a little distracted. That's embarrassing. All right, anyway. Uh, restart. Fine linen, purple clothes, and the poor man is essentially, the contrast is, he's full of sores. He's clothed with sores, whereas the rich man is clothed with fine clothes. The rich man feasts sumptuously. He doesn't just feast, he feasts sumptuously. And then the poor man desires to be fed from the crumbs of the rich man's table. That phraseology means he would have wished to just eat like a dog. Okay? But instead, he's lower than a dog because his sores ooze pus that the dogs eat for their sustenance. You see the contrast between these people? How different they are? Now think of this from a societal perspective. Think about it from today. Have you, ever, have you ever seen people in poverty? Yeah? You can see people maybe here in Holland or if you've gone to Chicago or Baltimore or New York City, go to a bigger area, and you see people living in poverty. How do you generally think about the poor? Maybe some of you might have this quick justification to not give any attention to them, and you're like, well, they probably brought it on themselves. Anyway, let's move on. Or you just try to not think about them. But I want you to notice how much God cares for this poor man. Whereas the rich man, the rich man didn't give this poor man any attention, God knows the poor man's name. Now, God knows the rich man's name too, but I think this is emphasis here in the text, that God knows his name. God cares for Lazarus. Now, the rich man, he has ample opportunity to think about Lazarus because the Lazarus lived at the entrance to his area. He, he lived at the, at the gate of his household, but they lived very different lives. Now, at this point, I want to make further application or implications for cultural maybe relevance here. I mean, we can think about how we ought to be uh, godly individuals towards the poor, but I actually think what Jesus is bringing up even in this text is not only how we treat the poor, but just how do we treat the vulnerable and weak in society. So much of what Jesus did in his ministry was showing how God cares for the weak and the oppressed and those that other individuals didn't care for. So I want us to think about other, other ways in which this can apply. How much thought do you give and care do you give towards uh, children, uh, children who might be in abusive situations, or how much thought do you give towards children who are in the womb, as even Jonathan prayed earlier, the safest place that a children ought to be is in the womb, and yet we have so many states that are trying to say, you can abort all the way to the nth degree. But not only should we think about that, what about the women who are pregnant, who are in awful, horrible, very difficult situations where they're faced with those types of decisions? What about those as weak in society? How do you think about them? 
Or I even think about what about, what about migrant workers? What do we think about migrant workers? What, what are your thoughts when you drive down Quincy at, in late summer and see all the migrant workers? I used to be a part of an anti-human trafficking team for Ottawa County, and the chief of police was on that um, was in that group, and he said, so many of those individuals are actually being trafficked. They're enslaved. What are our thoughts about these individuals? Do we give thought to these individuals? Because God does. He does care. He's near to the brokenhearted, right? These human beings are human beings created in God's image, and Jesus came to reconcile all types of people, ourselves included, to God. Now let's continue to read verses 22 through 23. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So let's notice more contrast here. The rich man dies, he's buried, and he's tormented in Hades. Lazarus dies, he's carried by angels, and he's at Abraham's side, comforted. There's, there's two similarities between the rich man and Lazarus. Two similarities in this whole story. Everything else is a contrast. <laughs> the two similarities are this. They are both human, and they both die. Those are the two things that are the same about these people. And when you hear this story from Jesus, you feel the weight of this. And, and what I mean by that is you get to the point to where death and torment and comfort and no listener now cares that the rich man feasted sumptuously anymore, right? Like we're like, we, we've moved on in the story. What does it matter if you gain the whole world and you lose your soul? That's, that's what Jesus is bringing across here. This is serious. All the food, clothes, lifestyle choices that might look righteous and look good to other people and that maybe even other people in culture and society might say, yes, thumbs up, we love that, you guys are great. That does not pull the wool over God's eyes. God sees the heart. Now, actually, I, I want to take a step off to the side for a moment here because some people, you might get the wrong idea with this message. When I talk about God being near to the brokenhearted and even to the poor and the weak and the needy, uh, some people can automatically assume that if you are poor, weak, or needy, therefore, you're a child of God because you're oppressed, right? And you might walk away from this story and just go, see, God cares about the poor. Every poor person is saved. Why? because they're poor? Wouldn't that be going against what Jesus is trying to teach? Don't justify yourselves on the basis of you or your experiences. You can't justify yourself before God because you're poor, right? We're looking to not trust ourselves, not trust our experiences, but to place our trust and hope in Jesus. And remember, the point of this story, though, is Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. So he's, he's highlighting those individuals to call them to trust in him. Okay, so this story hits us where we're at. The story uh, causes us to question and say, wait a second, there, there is an eternity. Jesus moves the veil be, between this and this eternal realm. 
And I think we ought to ask, do we live our life for the praise and attention of people and find a sense of justification when people approve of me? Do I trust people's evaluation of me more than I trust God's evaluation of me? You can't serve God and man or money. You can't. This is what Jesus is saying. But we try to silence the voice of God by listening to everybody else saying, no, it's fine, it's good, it's right. But what does God say? And God is holy. And he is glorious in giving mercy and judgment. Now, even when I ask you to ask these questions of yourself, we know that we as Christians, we're not, if you're a follower of Jesus, we're not saying we perfectly all the time fulfill this. But God has saved us to put us on a new trajectory so that our focus is on him and by his grace we live out his character to one another. That we seek to live for God and not just man or money. And that our focus of our affections would be directed to him. Now we can continue with the remaining part of the story. Starting in verse 24, the rich man calls out. He's in torment in hell. He calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he, the rich man said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Lazarus is at the side of Abraham, and he's in paradise. He's being given attention to by the patriarch of the Jewish faith. He's being comforted by Abraham himself. Lazarus, who wouldn't have been given any acknowledgement by the rich man, has Abraham's attention. Because Abraham has been saved by grace too, right? And so he shows that to Lazarus. You know, as I think about this, I, I'm reminded of Paul's words, the Apostle Paul, when he says the trials of this life are not worth comparing to the glories that are going to be revealed. We all go through trials in this life. But Lazarus there, we, we actually don't see Lazarus next to Abraham going, well, I mean, I hope you can make up for this. My life was horrible. No, it actually says he's comforted. Like, that's amazing. He's experiencing comfort there in glory. Glory is that glorious that God comforts his children. You see the mercy of God here? The mercy of God towards Lazarus? 
When we think of ourselves and our weaknesses and our sins, whether we're rich or whether we're poor, we know we don't deserve that kind of treatment. There's nothing we could do to earn that kind of treatment. But if we are justified by God and not by man, then we're accepted into God's glory and we receive mercy. And God's glory is on display in giving us this mercy. What Jesus reveals in this story, too, is God's glory on display, also in contrasting the glory of mercy with the condemnation. How does the rich man respond to Abraham? He actually cries out, first thing, have mercy on me. What does he know he's lacking? Mercy. Have mercy on me. And what would be merciful to him? Just a dip of, of, of the finger into water to come on his tongue because he's in torment in this place. By the way, that shows us that hell is a place of torment. But I also want you to see how this rich man responds. How does this rich man think about Lazarus? He's still treating him like he's a slave. That he's a nobody. Listen, Abraham, like, yeah, I'm not going to ask Abraham to do it because Abraham, you know, he's the patriarch. But Abraham, send Lazarus to dip his finger into the water on my tongue. What is this rich man thinking about himself? He still thinks he has status in hell. That's lunacy. He is bound in his sins. Sure, he can cry. He can cry out, have mercy. Have mercy, I'm in torment. Send Lazarus to serve me. And just put a little bit of water on my tongue. You know, on earth, that rich man could try to create his own reality. And God even allowed him to ignore him. But in hell, God will not allow you to create your own reality. God will not allow you to be in control. Because it goes on, and Abraham's response is, no, there's no way. This is impossible, because, because God has created this chasm between us and you, and no one can pass. You can't even come here. Now, by the way, that should actually be a sign of mercy and comfort to those who are, who are in glory. Because that means Lazarus will never be abused, ever. He'll never be traumatized ever in glory. Listen, do you hear that? If you've trusted in Christ, there is no abuse or trauma or mistreatment in heaven, ever. Never. That's glorious. But this angers the rich man. He's been able to be the self-made man. He's been able to be the one to create his own reality so that he could be the one who rules and he can eat sumptuously and he can do whatever he wants whenever he wants it. And now he can't. So what does he do? How does he respond? Well, fine then. He acts almost kind of spiritual, right? He says, he says go then, then tell, tell my brothers. Tell my brothers about this place. It's really interesting. You know, we went through this sermon uh, about a month ago on Jacob, and Jacob is the uh, heel grabber, right? Heel grabbing continues in hell for eternity. 
That's what the rich man is doing. He's heel grabbing. Okay, so what am I going to do? I'm going to give it another. No, no, you got to do this. Tell my brothers. Warn them of this place. And Abraham's response is what? They have Moses and the prophets. They have the scriptures. Do you hear that response? Christian, the Bible is sufficient. The Spirit's working through the scriptures is sufficient to warn people, to draw people's hearts, to cause them to see their need for God. And what the rich man is doing is he's saying God hasn't done enough. No, 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 we need something else. And Abraham is saying, no, God has given everything that they need. But the rich man believes he has a better idea than God. So he's arguing with Abraham. Again, this is lunacy. Who is the one in hell? It's him. It's the rich man. And he's arguing. He still trusts himself. He still trusts his way of doing things and his way of trying to fight for control. But Abraham then makes this profound statement. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's how Jesus ends the story. And we know that Abraham is pointing forward towards Jesus, don't we? I mean, that statement is so clear. And Jesus quoting this is showing these Pharisees, are you going to trust if someone rises from the dead? They're probably not because their heart is so hard. But he's pointing them to him. Will the Pharisees let go of their sinfulness? Will they let go of their self-justification? Will they trust Jesus once he rises from the dead? Questions that come to you. Will you let go of your self-trust? Will you let go of other people's approval? And they say, well, that's fine. Even though the Bible says it's not fine, it's still fine. And you just listen to those voices or are you going to listen to God? We need to listen to this story because there is an eternity. There is something to come. I hope you see that Jesus tells this story of God's condemnation and judgment with a purpose. That those who trust in him and call on him would be comforted. But also I think it's a call to people of even Jesus' words at another point in time, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Not only does Lazarus experience rest, but anyone who lets go and turns from self-trust and turns to trusting in him, you find rest for your soul. I know that you would find rest for your soul if you trusted in Jesus because he rose from the dead. And the resurrection was a verification of what he did on the cross. And what did Jesus do on the cross? He became sin. The Bible tells us that he actually, he, he took on the sin of sinners, even though he never sinned and endured the punishment. Jesus took hell, not just for one person, but for myriads upon myriads of people on himself. And he satisfied God's justice so that if you trust in Christ, then the Bible says, so that we might be the righteousness of God in him, that he gives us his righteousness as a gift. No self-justification, only God justification. That is glorious. Will you find rest for your souls? If you haven't trusted him, would you call on him today? If you have more questions about that, there's going to be people up here who would be willing to talk to you, more than willing to talk to you and pray for you and answer questions you might have about that. 
Do you trust Jesus? And do you see the glory of God in his holiness in this story? Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, but will by no means clear the guilty. Many years ago, I read someone's comments on this story, and I want you to hear what this author wrote, what he wrote about hell based off of this story. He says, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. I'll restate the sentence. Listen carefully. Hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. We see this process writ small in addictions to drugs, alcohol, gambling, and pornography. So he says, pictures of hell can be seen in those who embrace and live in their addictions. How? First, there is disintegration. Because as time goes on, you need more and more of the addictive substance to get an equal kick, which leads to less and less satisfaction. Second, there is isolation as increasingly you blame others and circumstances in order to justify your behavior. No one understands. Everyone is against me is muttered in greater and greater self-pity and self-absorption. When we build our lives on anything but God, that thing, though it could be a good thing, becomes an enslaving addiction, something we have to have in order to be happy. Personal disintegration happens on a broader scale. In eternity, this disintegration goes on forever. There is increasing isolation, denial, delusion, and self-absorption. Let me just ask you, do you see those four things in the rich man in hell? In hell, the rich man is in isolation, denial, delusion, and he's still completely self-absorbed. This author goes on, when you lose all humility, you are out of touch with reality. And then he says, no one ever asks to leave hell. The very idea of heaven seems to them a sham. You actually don't see the rich man say, get me out of here, do you? No, just have mercy on me. Just let, me let me do what I need to do. Take control. This actually confronts a teaching that I, I, I used to hear, I think, when I was growing up, that, that hell was full of people who were repentant. That finally, after the judgment, they said they were sorry, and they really meant it. And then they're in hell, and they're going, get me out of here! Do you realize people can ask to get out of something and not be repentant? And not truly be sorry? Do you realize that? That you, even in your sin today, you could be like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But are you? Are you truly trusting in the Lord? Listen, hell is not full of people who are repentant. The book of Revelation actually has God's decree saying, let the sinner still sin. He gives them over to their complete sinfulness, and there is now no mercy. Because they will continually be justly punished for their continuous, never-ending rebellion against God. Whew. 
that view of hell scares me. To be bound in your sins forever. To be bound in your addictions forever. To be bound. But Jesus can set you free. Isn't that what God even says throughout the scriptures? And I love the verbiage of God. In one of the Old Testament prophets, he says, why would you rather die? Why would you rather die? Instead, turn. Come to me. Repent. Find freedom and hope. Because listen, as I've said in so many other weeks, God is life. And if you reject God, you reject life. You cannot have life and reject life at the same time. But if you turn to God for life, you have life forever. Certainly then we see in this story, Jesus isn't safe. But he is so very good because for all those who trust, there's righteousness, there's mercy, there's comfort. God's glory will be on perfect display in the life to come. Would you choose life and experience grace? Or would you choose to trust yourself? Which is it? In just a moment, we're going to sing. I'm going to pray for us. But this, this song that we're singing is, uh, my life is not in what I own. That's what we're singing to close this time. I pray that that can be your genuine belief. And also, it would be for God's children. That's our prayer too. God, please, let me grow in realizing that and seeing that. My life is in you, not in what I own. So let me pray for us. And uh, then we'll sing. Oh, Father. Worthy are you, glorious are you, you are kind and merciful, and so I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts to help us to see your goodness and grace, to rejoice in you, and God, for those who are here who haven't trusted in you, that they would see, they would see and realize eternity. And that they wouldn't only simply be scared out of hell, but that they would see the magnificence of your goodness and they would be drawn into your loving arms. Lord, only you can do that. So do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen.